Now, you may have noticed that we have entered that time of year when the days are getting shorter. Sunrise officially took place at 7.54 this morning, and sunset is expected to take place around 6.45 this evening. That amounts to 10 hours and 50 minutes, roughly, of daylight today. Back on October 1st, the start of this month, the sun rose at 7.30 a.m. and the sun set at 7.20 p.m., resulting in almost 12 hours of daylight. So over the course of the past 30 days, we've already lost one hour of daylight in just 30 days. And we're only 52 days. Now, you hear that number 52 days, and I know what you're thinking. That's the same amount of time it took Nehemiah to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. I sure wish he'd uh, let that series go. But if you're not thinking that, I take it as a hint that I'm trying to drop a biblical fact that you can hold on to. But in just 52 days, we will have the winter solstice, which marks the shortest day of the year. That day is Wednesday, December 21st. We're entering that time frame where there's more darkness and less light. And as our days get shorter and the nights get longer, I'm reminded that throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light, and his absence is consistently associated with darkness. Think about, think about the burning bush that Moses encountered, God's presence and fire. Think about, think about Moses' face after he met with God. And how it shone so brightly that he needed a veil. Think about Paul's conversion. Saul to Paul. What was he blinded by? The light. Think about how heaven is described in Revelation chapter 21 as a place where there is no night because the glory of God gives it light. And then on the converse... Think about the plague of darkness which affected the Egyptians during that time of enslavement for the Israelites. Think about how blindness is associated with spiritual ineptitude in the New Testament. Think about how sin is referred to in Romans chapter 13 verse 12 and Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11 as works of darkness. Think about how evil is associated with darkness in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11 and Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Think about how hell is described as a place of complete darkness in passages like Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13, and Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. All throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light, while his absence is consistently associated with darkness. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But I'm also reminded that throughout the Bible, those who belong to God are associated with light, while those who are outside of his will are associated with darkness. God's people are referred to as children of light in Ephesians chapter 5. God's people are said to be walking in the light in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we're told that it's God's people who are called out of darkness 
and into His marvelous light. On the converse, unbelievers are said to remain in darkness in John chapter 12 and verse 46. The state of being lost and or separated from God in some fashion is referred to as walking in darkness in John chapter 12 and verse 35 and 1 John chapter 2 and verse 11. See, throughout Scripture, those who belong to God are associated with light, while those who are outside of His will are associated with darkness. So it's quite apparent that, the, that in the Bible, light is good and, and darkness is is bad. In other words, George Lucas got it right. And as our shorter days remind us of the theological implications of, of light and dark, I want us to consider the I am statement of Jesus that I personally consider to be the richest of all of them. Throughout the Gospel of John, you encounter seven statements that Jesus makes using the phrase I am at the beginning. And they're all powerful, and they're all important, and they all speak something of truth about Jesus. But tonight I want to talk briefly about the one he made in John chapter 8 and verse 12. The one where he said, I am the light of the world. You know, Jesus apparently made this statement amid a very specific event. If you journey back to John chapter 7 and verse 2, we learn that the Feast of Booths was at hand. Hopefully the Feast of Booths rings a bell for you because we talked a lot about it in our study of Nehemiah. The Feast of Booths was that feast, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. It was that feast celebrated in the fall of every year to commemorate the wilderness wanderings. In John chapter 7 and verse 37, we find out that the last time Jesus spoke prior to this I am the light of the world statement if you exclude the whole adulterous woman episode, which manuscript evidence seems to do. The last time he spoke before he said, I am the light of the world, was prior, excuse me, was on the last day of the feast. So it's possible that Jesus is going to declare, I am the light of the world in the midst of the feast of booths. What do we learn? What is the implication of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world? You know, there's a lot of implications you can make. You can, you can talk about how he illuminates for us God's word and God's will. You can even uh, con consider how he uh, invigorates us, how he gives life to us, almost like the sun does the vegetation through the process of photosynthesis. But what stands out to me is how Jesus navigates for us. See, light has always been useful when it comes to providing direction and guidance. Especially when you consider constellations. Constellations have been historically used as far back in history as the 14th century B.C. In fact, three constellations, the Bear, Orion, and Pleiades, appear in Job chapter 9 and verse 9, as well as Job chapter 38, verse 31 and 32. And Job is considered to be written in the patriarchal age, prior to the days of Moses. That's, that's 2000 B.C.-ish, if not earlier. 
constellations have served a variety of purposes over the year. Ancient farmers would say that constellations were used to determine the seasons. But what's most familiar to us is what ancient sailors would do. They would say that the constellations were their navigational tool. You know, it's fairly easy to spot Polaris, the North Star, in the night sky once you've found Ursa Minor. And one can figure out his or her latitude just by looking at how high Polaris appears in the night sky. And sailors have been doing that for millennia. Just as the light of a star can be used for navigation, Jesus provides guidance for us. What's so very interesting, I mentioned that Jesus' statement may have happened during the Feast of Booths. One thing worth mentioning about that feast is that each night of that seven-day feast, the priests would light four large candles in the court of the women outside the temple. And the glow from those candelabra could be seen across the city. I can't help but think that the fiery glow of those candles would remind the Jews who are commemorating their wilderness wandering at that very moment, it would remind them that their ancestors followed a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness, according to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21. See, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world in this specific context, he was intentionally comparing himself to God the Father who led his people by way of a great light. And Jesus is indicating that he is, he is the ultimate guide. He is the ultimate source of direction. He will later say in a different I am statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus' life and death have given us a standard, a, a fixed point in the sky, so to speak, that shows us, that leads us to the path that goes to heaven. He is the one who left us an example so that we might follow in his steps, as Peter would declare in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. He is the one who walked in the light and showed us what that entails. And the fact that his life serves as a guide for our own may explain why this I am statement, this I am name, is the only one of the seven I am names that Jesus not only applied to himself, but also to his followers. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus called himself the light of the world, but he also called you and me the light of the world. How can both statements be true? Jesus is, is the true source of light because he's the only one to ever live sinlessly. That means that his light is undiminished, unmarred, unobstructed. So he's the true source of light. He's the one illuminating our way to freedom from sin. We, on the other hand, are guilty of sin. So we can't be a source of light. Our light is diminished. Our light is obstructed. Our light 
is marred. So instead of being a source of light, we need to understand that we've been called to be a reflection of light. And to help us understand how both Jesus and us can have this light of the world title, I want to appeal to the relationship between the sun and the moon. And I know I've used this analogy a few times before from this very pulpit. But the Middletons haven't heard me use it, and that's at least five people here tonight who haven't heard me use it, so I feel like it's worth using again. Think about moonlight for a moment. Moonlight is the light that comes to the earth from the moon. However, moonlight does not originate from the moon. Moonlight is actually reflected sunlight. The moon operates like a giant mirror in the night sky, bouncing the light from the sun that it receives back to the earth. The sun is the source of light. The moon just reflects it. Isn't that the relationship that we're supposed to have to the sun? He's the true source of light. We're just here to reflect it to the world. But you know what? There is a fundamental problem with the moon. The moon does not orbit around the sun. The moon orbits around the earth. So that means that sometimes the moon comes between the sun and the earth. And when this happens, we call it an eclipse. Do you realize that even though it's our responsibility to serve as reflections of the one true light, we can sometimes get in its way? So we must be intentional about our walk with Christ to ensure that we do not interfere with His ability to be seen by the world. Because failure to walk in the light causes us to eclipse Christ. That is why Jesus said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 8 and verse 12. That is why Paul instructed us to walk as children of light in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. That is why John warned us that if we say we have fellowship with the Lord while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. You see, we're expected to behave and to talk and to think like Christ so that the world might see Him when they look at us. And if we fail at that assignment then we've eclipsed him. Tonight, when you depart from this facility, you will enter the darkness. Let it be a reminder to you that you're supposed to be the one shining in it. Not shining because of your own goodness or your own righteousness or your own specialness. Shining because you reflect the light of Christ. And remember... That the only way you can accomplish that is if you walk in the light as He is in the light. That you don't obstruct Him in any way, shape, or form. That's the mission. That's the assignment. That's the job. So tonight I want to encourage all of us to be strong lights. To be good reflectors of the one true light. To enter this world with the intent of shining for Christ. If you haven't been shining the way you should, then we offer an invitation this evening for you to correct what needs to be corrected. 
if you haven't put on Christ so that you can become his agent in this world that shines for him, then we offer this invitation so that you might come and put him on in baptism. Regardless of what your need may be this evening, we invite you to make sure your light is ready to shine for the Lord. Won't you choose to do that while together we stand and sing? I am This time there's an opportunity for anyone who still needs to take the, the Lord's Supper this day. Um, we'll sing.